Okay, so you know I love good wordplay. And Third Love is crushing their wordplay here. When you have a bra that pinches or slips or just isn't comfortable at all or is comfortable but isn't your style, you've got problems. <laughs> How excited was Third Love when they thought of problems? Well done, Third Love. I see you. When you wear Third Love bras, you've got no problems. They fix the problem of size exclusivity with their famous half-cup sizes that revolutionized the industry by giving more options to find a bra that fits. And they fixed the problem of guessing what bra will fit you with their virtual fitting room and other helpful guides. A bra size chart, a bra 101 education section that's basically an FAQ for all your burning questions, and a ton of great reviews from real people. My sister just texted me, 99 problems, but pinching <laughs> isn't one. It's time to get your problem solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code podcast15. So welcome back to We Can Do Hard Things we are with actual sex queen, Emily Nagoski, who um, I'm going to read her. Actually, I got so excited during the um, first episode with Emily that I did not read her official bio. So I'm going to read it right now. Emily Nagoski is the award-winning author of the New York Times bestselling Come As You Are, newly revised and updated in 2021. And the Come As You Are workbook and the co-author with her sister, Amelia, of New York Times bestseller, Burnout, The Secret to Unlocking the Stress Cycle. By the way, I want to say, Emily, that I did not know you wrote that freaking book. And I read it twice last year. I didn't know that oh you wrote gosh. it. And with your sister. It's so good. You all need to get Burnout. Um, I love that we both work with our sisters. I know. I know. Another 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 connection. The silent sex queen sister. She earned an MS in counseling and a PhD in health behavior, both from Indiana University and clinical and research training at the Kinsey Institute. And now she combines sex education and stress education. Amazing, that combo. To teach women to live with confidence and joy inside their bodies. She lives in Massachusetts with her two dogs, a cat and a cartoonist. Freaking, I even love your bio, Emily. Let's hear a question from our audience. Let's do it. Okay. Our first question is a call-in from Wesley. Hi, Glennon. Hi, sister. Hi, Abby. I don't know if you'll be on, but hi, you all. I love you guys. Uh, my name is Wesley, and my hard question today is how do you deal um, with navigating a relationship where you and your partner have different sex drives. I feel like mine is much higher than his and like we've talked about it. We've tried to compromise. We've tried all sorts of things, but he still just doesn't seem to want to do it as much as I do. And this just causes my mind to jump to all sorts of conclusions and assumptions like, I'm not good enough, pretty enough. Maybe he is being satisfied by someone else and I don't trust him as much. And 
I don't like that. And I just could use some advice. Um, yeah. Love you guys. Bye. Part of me, the pragmatic me wants to dive in and give as much like here, concrete specific advice, tips and tricks to make sure people feel helped. But I think that's not pot. Like when you can hear the mm-hmm. sadness and loneliness and I want to make sure we address that, recognize it, honor it for what it is, that when a partner declines sex routinely, the person who keeps trying to initiate is going to have feelings about that. And that's normal and healthy and fine. And the trick to moving forward is to get very concrete and specific with yourself so that you can bring that to your partner. So I would like Wesley to make a list on a sheet of paper, right at the top, what is it that I want when I want sex? And then on the back side of that paper, or maybe like draw a line down the middle of the paper and on the other side, write, what is it that I like when I like sex? Sex is doing a lot of work, or she would like it to be doing a lot of work. I don't know. I don't know their pronouns now that I mention it. They don't know how much weight sex is carrying because sex by itself is joy and pleasure and excellence, potentially, or it's just a fun hobby. But it, and it can be a mode of deep emotional connection. It can be a path for self-discovery and mutual discovery. So which of those things is this caller looking for? Mm. Do they want to feel connected? And when their partner says no, they feel isolated and lonely? If that's the case, then find other ways to feel connected. Talk about, like, what are the things we do when I feel closest to you, when I feel like you are super there for me? I hear the trust issue also. Is he getting his needs satisfied somewhere else? Trust is the bedrock of relationships. And fortunately, there's a whole bunch of science about it. Sue Johnson, the therapist and researcher who developed emotionally focused therapy, which most of us will encounter as the hold me tight workshops. She defines trust as the answer to the question, are you there for me? And R, of course, stands for emotionally accessible, emotionally responsive, and emotionally engaged. So that when I come to you with some difficult feelings, you turn toward them. You don't just keep watching your TV show and go, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. You turn toward the person and you listen with kindness and compassion. That is the most important resource we give and receive in relationships is turning toward each other's difficult feelings. And this is a doozy of a difficult feeling. It is incredibly, it's like extra difficult because you want to have this conversation in a way that avoids blaming or judging either person. It is a third thing. It is this tangled knot of stuff that you co-created. I use I use this very ridiculous metaphor of the sleepy hedgehog. Yes, I love it. 
Where, like, when you have a difficult feeling, imagine that it's like a sleepy hedgehog that's just, like, sitting in the bed when you want to get in the bed. And you've got to do something about it. So what you can't yell at it. You can't just throw it against a wall. Somebody's going to get hurt if you do that. So what you do is you gently turn toward it. You find out its name. Its name, in this case, might be loneliness. It might be insecurity. It might be distrust. And then you ask it, what did it need in order to move out of your bed? Oh, my God. And free itself. And when it tells you some things, you take it in your palms and you go to your partner and you say, hello, can I, when you have a moment, I want to introduce you to loneliness, which is this difficult feeling I'm having. And when I think about it, what it needs is this. Do you think that might be something you can help me with so that we can get this hedgehog out of our bed? Oh, my God. These are not easy conversations. And I think a lot of like individual prep work is valuable. Getting really clear about what it is you want when you want sex, what it is you like when you like sex. And Mm -hmm. on the other side, especially if you're the lower desire partner, P.S. When couples seek therapy for differential desire, uh, it's. In straight couples, it's just as likely to be the man who's lower desire as the woman. Mm. Also think about what is it that I don't want when I don't want sex? Question for the lower desire partner. What is it that I don't like Mm. when I don't like sex? I'm going to channel the brilliant sex therapist and researcher Peggy Klein-Plotz, who would have, you know, couples come to her. They haven't had sex for years And uh, one of the partners will say, it would be fine with me if we never had sex again. I'm only here because my partner wants it. And Peggy's question is, tell me more about this sex you don't want. Mm. And sometimes it is uh, dismal and disappointing sex. And here's, here's Peggy's radical, radical idea. It is normal not to want sex you don't like. But also... Maybe what you don't like is the feeling of obligation, of responsibility, of maybe you are so stressed, overwhelmed, and exhausted that you cannot find your way to the erotic place in your mind. And what you need is help getting to the erotic place, finding out which other places in your brain have a doorway Mm. into your erotic mind. I love that. So it doesn't mean you don't have the erotic place or you don't like eroticism. It means you can't, it's blocked. You can't get to it. Some people have like teensy tiny little sort of like medicine cabinets of eroticism. Mm -hmm. Asexual folks, like there's just not a lot of it there. And fair enough, people vary. Some people have a palace of erotic mind place. Mm -hmm. I have a friend who basically, it's not just that every other mind state has a doorway into the lust area in his brain. It's that he's usually in the lust place and he can like go other places if he wants to. (laughs) And cool, like people vary. Uh People just vary. That was awesome. Think about how delicately you hold your baby, you dress your baby and you feed your baby. We do that because they're adorable, of course, but also because their skin is delicate. Know this. There is only one 
diaper brand that we recommend to give you the gentle protective care your little one needs. And that's Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Their Swaddler's diaper absorbs wetness better versus the leading value brand and provides up to 100% leak-proof skin protection to keep your baby's skin dry, healthy, and beautiful. And when you use Swaddler's in tandem with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes, you'll keep your baby's skin healthy. The wipes are made from 100% plant-based cloth, and you won't have to worry about tearing. With Free and Gentle, mess meets it's match. That's right. So download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. All right, let's hear from Heather. Here's Heather. What do you do when you don't desire sex at all? I'm 44 and have been married to a wonderful man for 22 years. Sex has always been fine, but intermittent and sometimes conspicuously absent. I was raised in a Southern Baptist church and scarring and shame. You talked about it in your last episode is only too real as I have yet to get over some of the lasting poison I drank for so long. Mm. Now I'm entering into what they say is perimenopause, which has brought with it what seems like a lack of desire for both of us. We haven't had sex in at least a year, maybe more. I've been thinking about what sex actually means to me. Such a good question. Never thought about it before. But now things with my husband feel super awkward and stagnant. Is this normal for women my age? Do you have any advice? It's normal for people of all genders and of all ages. Let me uh, first bust bust the myth that there's a relationship between the hormone changes of perimenopause and menopause and a shift in desire. When changes happen, it's Maybe because people might be prone to pain because of vaginal atrophy from the change in hormones, but lube fixes that. Mm-hmm. And there's uh, hormonal interventions that you can use if you're interested in uh, having vaginal penetration. So it's not the perimenopause, except insofar as that's a psychological cue. But if two people spend a long time not having sex with each other, a lot of those hedgehogs can accumulate. There's just like dozens of them crawling all over the bed, snoozing, napping on each other. <laughs> and you've got two tasks to manage. First, you have the task of gradually putting your bodies closer and closer to each other until you find your place, until you find yourself in a place where sex seems like a good idea. And that's like pretty pragmatic. That's like scheduling and like you can do a sense. If you Google sensate focus, sensate, S-E-N-S-A-T-E, focus uh, or um, graded exposure therapy, you give Hmm. yourself steps to follow of like getting closer and closer to each other. That's one of the practical things to do. The other thing which is a separate process, is dealing with all the feelings that everybody has about the problem. You have to address the feelings separately from the process of solving the problem that caused all the feelings, Mm -hmm. which the sleepy hedgehog metaphor can do. Sometimes you will find yourself getting closer and closer and you're like reminded of that time when you really wanted to initiate and Uh, the person turns you away and like the way you felt shoved into a pit of despair, like this is never going to work. And you need your partner 
to listen kindly, generously, hold you in your arms, in their arms, and let you cry and have feelings and not take it personally, but do take it seriously. That's the two steps. I like that. Deal with the problem, but also manage all the feelings around the problem. And that's managing the feelings is the hard part. Mm -hmm. Um, It helps if you can develop a shared vocabulary. For example, knowing about the brakes and the accelerator is very useful. What activates my accelerator? What activates my brakes? Um, And also getting clear about the definitions of desire, arousal, pleasure, and consent. Because those Mm. are four different things that people mix up all the time. And so finding out what feels good is the first step. The reason I have people do what is it that I want when I want sex and what is it that I like when I like sex is that they are different things. Uh. One is what's the thing you're moving toward. And one is what is the thing you like in the here and now in the moment when sex is happening. I also want to say that lots of people grow up in strong faith traditions where they are not taught that their bodies are bad and they don't have to hate themselves. In fact, their body is a gift from God and they are granted all of the pleasure that comes with it because God gave you this pleasure. Go for it. They're what whatever. Faith? What what religion are we talking about? <laughs> I mean, Sign like me up. branches of every religion, name a religion. And there are some people in that religion where the communities are like, yeah, we don't do that shame thing. Mm, that's amazing. So if you want to stay in a religion, find a different church or a different temple or a different mosque that doesn't teach that stuff. We're going to hear from Melissa. Melissa says, I am a 45-year-old young woman that previously spent 17 years with my husband. Six years ago, my husband became my wife. Life is moving along, and while I love my wife, I feel like a duck out of water. I had never been with a woman. We are slowly figuring things out, but I am exceedingly nervous about screwing something up. Pardon the pun. (laughs) She's funny. I was always the receiver. I want that to be different. I guess my question is, how do I get past my fear of being the initiator? You might know this because this is a little bit like your story. I do know this one. But I want you to answer. No, I want you to answer. And then I will tell you. Just you go. I'm scared. I don't want to tell Melissa anything that's not, you know, scientifically correct. So the science of it is actually pretty simple. There's a wonderful book called Magnificent Sex by Peggy Kleinplatz, whom I just mentioned. She spent years uh, interviewing people who self-identified as having extraordinary sex lives. And it included people of all genders, all sexual orientations, all relationship structures. And she found out that what extraordinary sex looks like has nothing to do with the standard cultural to narrative of sex. It's responsive desire. It's prioritizing sex. Having sex mean enough in your relationship to be worth making time and space for. And the book goes through the science of why this is true and how to make it happen in your life. For me, this is a question about courage. It's a question about how to be brave. Mm -hmm. And like you have this break. It got trained into you when you were little child. And so it's not going to happen immediately all at once. You have to un 
learn the thing step by step. You need your partner to be all the way there for you. When I was talking about trust and are you there for me, you know, you come into a room and you take off some clothes and this person is going to see parts of your body almost no one will see Mm -hmm. and touch parts of your body almost no one will touch and maybe put a part of their body inside yours or you're going to put a part of your body somewhere inside of their body. So if you show up with your body and their response is, meh, that is not a partner who is there for you. Mm -hmm. Or if they just take it for granted, like, good, your body's here. I've been waiting. You owe me. Right? That's a partner who's not there. So what you want is a partner who, when you show up, goes, yay, and wow, and thanks. Mm -hmm. Those are the signs that your partner is fully there for you. So if you and your wife, congratulations, are both thoroughly there for each other. What Peggy Kleinplot says is that great sex is sex that is just safe enough. Mm. Uh, so that you can... <laughs> Abby pull, just like, out of her You chair. explore your sexual terrain and you know what's true. But when it gets extraordinary is when you take a risk, like initiating, where you take hands with your partner And like you've explored your sexual terrain, you know what's true, you love what's true, and together you take a step into the darkness of what you don't know. Yeah. That is where the magnificence happens. Oh. And that's true with everything. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's like, and then you, and you have to be so vulnerable when you try something brand new that you've never done before. I mean, the first time I tried to be like the one to like make out with you, Abby. Oh my God. I was so scared. I swear. I was like about to pee my pay. I was so scared because I just had to like, and and then I did it though, because you know, SSQ, but (laughs) silent sex queen. But Emily, I also feel like I still, now we're five years in and I still feel scared. It's not like you do it once and yep. then I'm st- scared and it all activates every single time. Mm-hmm. But you're what right. counts as safe enough is going to change from context to yes. context. Yes. As the uh, trust builds in a relationship, more stuff becomes safe enough. Mm-hmm. But oh. trust, trust between the two people is one thing. Trust of yourself is another thing and the two don't necessarily grow at the same rate. That's good. Yeah. And I, it's also true, isn't the trust and are you there for me, that extends beyond your sexual encounter, right? Like, it matters, are you there for me all day long, not are you just doing the right thing right now, right? Yeah. Okay. That's why I think sex, the way I define (laughs) sex is throughout a day. It's like- yeah. That that's the like the main element. It's like, are you actually here for me? Like when you hand me that coffee, Glennon, I'm like, you are here for me because you know how important that is. So and I talked know. about that uh, with my therapist. <laughs> you <laughs> talked about Abby's coffee with your therapist. This is I, so I talked full about circle. like that I was gonna like yeah, come yeah. and do this, yes. and I was talking about what your relationship looks like from the outside. And my therapist wrote her master's thesis on uh, lesbian relationships. And how they contrast to heterosexual relationships. She's a lesbian. Uh, And that dynamic of like, I am connected to you. And this is a way of knowing that is undervalued because guess whose dominant style is likely to be connected knowing? Mm -hmm. It's women. Right. 
Mm-hmm. So, so lesbian relationships are sometimes characterized by more connected knowing than separate knowing. Mm-hmm. Less The arguments are less based on fact and reason and more based on how it felt for me when you did this was like this and how it felt for me. And I totally understand why I would feel that way for you. <laughs> and what are we going to do? Because both of us are right. So like, That's so lesbian it. relationships are total immersion programs and heterosexual relationships are like Spanish 101. <laughs> With the 2024 games in Paris on the horizon, I've gotten nostalgic about my international career. And when I look back, there are a few things I would have done differently to make sure I made the most of my time abroad. And one of those things was to learn a non-English language more fully. A daunting task, yes, but a much easier one when you consider that Rosetta Stone can get you fast language acquisition through their intuitive, research-based, dynamic immersion approach. That's why they're the most trusted language learning program and have been for years with millions of users and 25 languages offered. Whether it's Dutch, Arabic, or Chinese, don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, we Can Do Hard Things listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash we can. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash we can today. Can you play the next voicemail, please? Hi, Glennon and sister. I grew up in a family where abstinence is what was promoted, and it was kind of fear-based abstinence. Um, If you're not abstinent, you'll get pregnant, you'll get an STD. And it worked for a while um, until I went to college. And then I think I rebelled against the taboo um, that that had been created. So, you know, sex was shameful, and there was a taboo about it. Um, And now that I'm a mother and I have a young son, I don't want the pendulum to swing all the way in one direction of abstinent, don't ever do this, be ashamed of your body, nor do I want him to make choices on the other end of the the, pen, or the pendulum to swing the other way where decisions are all um, not made with love for his own body. So how do you talk to sex about, about sex with your children? Um, how do you teach them that it's natural and normal and loving and respectful, um, but also protect them so they make decisions that keep their body safe. All right. Thanks, Glennon. Thanks, sister. Thanks, Abby. Oh, I love this question so much. I know, and Me I love too. her. Retweet, because so I have the I same don't question. Have, I, don't, I don't know anything about, like, age-appropriate conversation with kids. I have always taught college age and older. Like, give me a group of senior citizens and I know how to talk, but I don't know about age-appropriate answers to specific questions. Uh, So I can't give that information. May I recommend, though, any book by Corey Silverberg? He wrote the wonderful book, What Makes a Baby, Sex is a Funny Word, and uh, he has a forthcoming book. I think it's called, you know, Sex. His books are great. Those are for younger kids, obviously. Um, But 
what I can say instead of like what's age appropriate is to the, the first th- step to take when you want to not pass on a bunch of junk that has messed with your sex life is to deal with your shit. Mm. I was afraid you were going to say that. Damn Emily. It to hell, Emily. <laughs> Sorry. But like, like what's remember, another way? So my mom, <laughs> when she had that flash of emotion, when I asked what a vagina was, mm-hmm. had no idea what she was passing on to me. It mm-hmm. wasn't on purpose. Mm-hmm. The most sex positive parents are the ones. So Peggy Klein, Peggy um, Orenstein writes about this mm-hmm. in her book, Girls and Sex, that it was only later in life that she recognized that when her mom like was explicit about sexual things and talked about sexual pleasure and as a young person a teenager Peggy Orenstein was like ugh mom don't gross <laughs> it was only later that she came to appreciate just how powerful and important that was mm. that like be that parent who embarrasses your oh, kids babe, at the dinner table and in the car Right. Okay, like, yeah, because our kids do that. They're always we're always bringing it up and they're always doing that drama. And when they do that, it makes me feel like we did something wrong because why are they so. Uh, they're just appalled. They're like, yeah, because everywhere else they go, everywhere else they go is teaching them that is the appropriate response, mm, okay. which is why she's talking about a pendulum swing. Mm-hmm. Um, abstinence. Is not the opposite of like not doing sex in a loving, respectful way. Mm-hmm. They are on the same side of the pendulum. The For 40 plus years, the research has been utterly unambiguous that, co- that abstinence only, especially abstinence only until marriage education, increases rates of sexually transmitted infections, increases rates of unwanted pregnancies, and students have sex earlier. Earlier, it's called sexual debut. It's another one of those terms I really like. Comprehensive evidence-based queer inclusive sex education, on the other hand, reduces rates of STIs, reduces rates of unwanted pregnancy, and increases age of first sex. It delays sexual debut, if that's a thing you're interested in. So comprehensive sex education gives you all the goals. You as a parent at home have the job of being the one who like is as undamaged by the cultural stuff as possible or is sort of transparent, especially as they get to the teen years, transparent about like, yeah, the world's teaching you some bullshit nonsense. Don't -hmm. believe it. Mm -hmm. And you're the inoculation against it. Um, And and you don't have to worry about going too far to the extreme. I have a sex educator friend with uh, two daughters. And when they were really little, a common thing you would hear at their dinner table is we don't touch our vulvas at the dinner table. Like (laughs) sex education includes boundary education. Right. (laughs) Recognizing what's appropriate, teaching people how to like read cues from other people. Sister, talk about your. Oh, God, I'm no, I'm just so glad you said that, because sometimes I feel like I'm so (laughs) on the opposite that, you know, like my husband will say things like that, like, don't touch your privacy at the dinner table. And I'll be like, oh, my God, she getting scorned. (laughs) Like you're you're trying to, like, put her in a box. There are reasonable limits. There are reasonable limits. That's so great to hear. Okay, so you can say 
Can't he touch say your vulva. vulva? Yeah, why isn't John of, well, saying vulva? Said, I'm trying to get him. I'm trying to get him there. I'm trying to get. She right. knows it. She knows all. She, she knows says it. vulva I mean, all the time. Amanda, she knows. Sister is her mother. Your favorite word is vulva. No, she knows all her parts. She knows her. She knows her clitoris. She knows everything. But I didn't know. I didn't. That's a good because they touch and and I just never say anything. But saying we don't do. That I mean, at if the you're table. at the mall, if yeah, and, right and. It feels good to touch your vulva. Right. It does. So, and if you're a little kid who hasn't like been taught that they're, the, our, our culture has limits to where it's willing to grant you permission to touch your vulva. <laughs> like the mall is not one of them. Grocery right. market, grocery store is not one of them. Mm-hmm. Your room, go for Perfect. it. Yes. Shower, go for it. Great. But Emily, I love the idea that we, so, so many of us are trying to figure out how, what do we say to our kids? And it's like, we're trying to figure out how to say the right thing without first becoming the right thing. Right. Like, so we, we can, the first thing you she don't can have do to is wait until you pop. are perfect. No, 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 no. If we do that, we're yeah. done. Right. Right. But she can start detoxing herself yes. so that the things she say will naturally be less terrifying than the things she was taught. That's cool. Okay. Let's hear from Kat. My stepdaughter came out last year. She's interested in girls and her dad supports her, but her mom is very religious and seems to be discouraging her, saying she should wait until she's older to be sure. I don't know all the details, but I do know her house is more supportive, except we don't talk about it. And the other day, someone reminded me that my lens is entirely straight. From my experience, I know about romance between a man and a woman, and I know about sex with a man and a woman. If she has questions, I can do my best as a human who has been in love and lust and all sorts of messes. But what if that's not enough? Her father isn't worried about it, but I am. Does she need to talk to someone who has had the experiences she'll have? Does she need to read a book about two girls who fall in love or something I'm not even thinking of? How can I best support her being herself? I don't want to make y'all the poster women of lesbians, but the way you supported (laughs) Chase when he came out, I want to throw a dance party too. And in lieu of that, I want to make sure I'm not just saying I support her, but I'm also giving her what she needs to thrive from her lens, not mine. Ugh. Cat for president. Love that. I love that this stepmom recognizes that she is not enough. I know it's sort of Mm -hmm. like we're all supposed to be like, I am enough. I am enough. Nope. 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 If you're 100% straight, you are not what a young person who's just coming out needs. That Mm -hmm. person deserves a community of peers and a community of elders to help learn What's this all about? Otherwise, all they, all this kid has is scripts of heterosexuality. And so her experience with girls is going to be heteronormative. And that's not what we want. Mm-mm. So uh, y'all feel free to dive in here. But my idea is books, mm. <laughs> gift wrapped one by one in a huge basket. There are a couple of nonfiction books that are just necessary. One of them is Girl One, Girl Sex 101 by Allison Moon. Don't know if you've read it, but it's it's the one, Girl Sex 101. And then there's a book called Queer, The Ultimate, Ultimate LGBTQ Guide for Teens by Kathy Belge. It was just revised in 2019. Things change really fast, so it had to be revised. Uh, so those are two sort of like encyclopedic, here you go. And just the fact that you're giving them is like, I mm. went and got these. But there's also so many novels mm. and so many comics. We don't know 
the kid's age. Um, but again, anything by Corey Silverberg. Uh, there's Heather Corna of What Fresh Hell Is This? The, for ages 9 to 14, Heather and Isabella Rotman wrote a comic called, wait, what? <laughs> that features uh, an androgynous platypus <laughs> that tells the story about sexuality as gender inclusive and gen- or, or, you know, sexual orientation inclusive and funny and charming. If uh, she's a little bit older, like 14 and older, there's a great book called Let's Talk About It by Erica Moen and Matt Nolan. Erica Moen is the cartoonist who illustrated Come As You Are. Um, and she and her husband wrote her own book about it for, old, and again, it's entirely gender inclusive and entirely LGBTQIA plus inclusive. Um, if this kid is up to a literary level where they're like reading for like big complex stories, Alison Bechtel's Fun Home, so good. Very specific. And uh, the newest one on my list of the sort of graphic novels is Times I Knew I Was Gay by Eleanor Cruz, which is, again, for when you've got past 15 and you're reading in a deeper way. Emily, one of the things I love so much about you, it's such a, well, it's such a female leadership way of being, but I mean, you have just pointed out so many other resources for us every time you're so generous with your, I don't know, with the way that you've thrown light at so many different people and you're just a huge source of, um, goodness and depth. And I just have loved every minute of this. And I want to say to Kat, um, you know, when Chase came out, we, we are gay. All right. But we weren't enough. I mean, Abby and I had to find, look for people who who come into your life now. It will just magically happen. It just magically happens. I mean, our kid has, um, he's gay and he's also Japanese. So he's, you know, got a bunch of intersections going on that we don't, we're not enough. Right. So we had to find people that he could, um, we kind of were matchmakers, not in romantic relationships, but in like, kind of be, can you be our kid's mentor? Can you be, um, Chase actually said to us once, we, I have enough moms. Mm. I'm not sure I need more. And I'm like, yes, you do. Damn it. I know how many more you need. Well, and if you don't have, if you don't have access to anybody, because I do also know that some people out there, they might know a gay kid and they might be trying to find a community for them. There are very, there are so many different LGBTQ community-based chapters around the country, Mm -hmm. even in very, very conservative places like Naples, Florida, where we just came from. They Mm -hmm. opened one up while we were there. Take your kid there. Not only would it be an amazing resource for your kid, but it'll be an amazing resource for you, the parents, who also need to do a little bit of educating so that you can be the landing, the safe landing place for this gay kid. Mm -hmm. Congratulations. Babe, I don't know what you'd say about this, but I feel like it's better to overdo it than underdo it. Absolutely. Right? Like, talk about it more than what's comfortable to you because this kid's going to be living in a world where so so few things apply to them. Like, the more you can bring it up. Ask yourself the question. If my child told me that it came out to me as straight, how often you would talk about said straight. So did you meet a new kid? Yeah. Do you have a new friend? Exactly. exactly. And so if you find that there's a void in the, those same similar questions, just because your kid might have 
uh, a tendency towards homosexuality or gayness or queerness, then you know that you have to sometimes overcompensate for your bias. Mm -hmm. And so that is where I think is important that uh, you give them as much space to talk about it because then you'll be like me where you have to come out six times in yeah. 10 years. Uh, by the way, I'm still gay. By, by the way, <laughs> I'm still gay. <laughs> Pod Squad, some of what we share with you on the show are our individual unique experiences in therapy and the takeaways that help us grow, appreciate each other, and navigate this beautiful life we're doing together. Thank you for doing it with us. But the things we talk about in therapy itself, these are things we wouldn't necessarily share with just anyone. I think there are a few things more important than finding the right person to share your deepest thoughts, feelings, and questions with like a therapist. That's why we are thrilled about Alma's support of our show. They're big believers that you need the right someone to talk to, not just anyone. Alma helps you to find a therapist who gets you based on your needs, someone with whom you'll feel comfortable, heard, secure. Plus, and this shouldn't be overlooked, over 96% of therapists at Alma accept insurance because you want to pick someone based on the right fit, not just based on finances. You can browse their directory now. You don't even need to create an account. Visit helloalma.com slash hard things to schedule a free consultation today. That's helloalma.com slash hard things. All right, listen, Emily, you're going to love this. this is, we do a pod squatter of the week. So this is an email I got, which just made me so happy. I'm going to change the names to protect the amazing. Okay. Um, dear Glennon and sister and Abby, thank you for being brave enough to record and share your sex queen podcast episodes. There was so much that I could relate to. I ended up discussing many of the topics with my husband, which was super helpful. So thanks. But my reason for writing is that I wanted to share a story with you. In your Q&A episode, there was much discussion about vibrators, and there was also a question about how to talk about, provide info to your kids about sex. So here's my story. Recently, I noticed that my vibrator was missing. This was a little alarming, as you can imagine. <laughs> After a thorough search, I found it in my 15-year-old daughter's bedroom. Not knowing how to handle the situation, I took it back, and we didn't discuss it. Not awesome parenting, I know. When it went missing a second time, I talked to my husband about this phenomenon, and he said, just buy her one, which was great advice. So I did buy my 15-year-old child a vibrator. Yes, I did. But instead of giving it to her directly like a grown-up, I just put it in the hiding place where I had find, found mine. Soon thereafter, I walked into my kitchen to find my 15- and 18-year-old daughters looking at me with the vibrator smack in the center of the kitchen counter. This prompted a glorious discussion of vibrators, why we have them, sex in general, women as sex objects, porn, etc., etc., the next day, I bought one for my 18-year-old daughter, too. I hope this gives them freedom and removes some stigma about sex for them. Sister, Yay. I can't wait to share with them your 75% clitoral <gasps> orgasm statistic. When the time is right, of course. Thanks for all you do, Melissa. Well, Melissa, they all have vibrators. I think the time is right now. She just got to have an <laughs> orgasm because now. Emily, yeah. is that amazing? That's amazing. That is amazing. That's amazing. Oh. And you know what? I am all in favor of the subtle, the quiet invitation okay. of not being like, here is my gift to you. You can have a vibrator of your own, but just, you just leave it there where, you know, 
she goes looking mm-hmm. so she can find it. And that is like a silent open door. And mm-hmm. that you got away with not talking about the silence. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What do you think about the silence? Do you want to save it for the next time? Because you know I'm going to harass you to come back here again. Or do you want? What, what do you think? I want, I want her to I, say the things about the silence. I'm I'm not going to go deep into the theory. I'm just going to go right into the psychoeducational intervention. Mm-hmm. You're going to draw a big plus sign on a piece of paper so that it's divided into four quadrants. Okay. In the first quadrant, you're going to write, what are the good things about silence? In the second quadrant, you're going to write, what are the not so good things about silence? In the third quadrant, you're going to write, what are the good things about noise? And in the fourth quadrant, what are the not so good things about noise? You're going to fill all of that out. You're going to look like, what do I notice when I look at the good things and the not so good things about these two different things? Are there strategies I can use to maximize the good things and minimize the not so good things? Mm -hmm. On the flip side, I want you to write why it matters that you would try noise. And then I want you to write on a scale of zero to 10, how important is it to you to make noise? And on a scale of zero to 10, how confident do you feel that if you decided to try noise, you could, if you decided. Mm-hmm. That's the activity. Right. And again, as the sister of professional musicians, as the daughter of a professional musician, my mom is a singer too, what I know is that the voice evolved to express emotion. That is its primary job. And I know a lot of us get raised to believe that women should be silent because our emotions are not welcome because we're human givers. Pretty happy, calm, generous, and attentive to the needs of others. God forbid we have experiences of our own. (laughs) So it is part of your good things about making noise is that it's smashing the patriarchy with your voice. Plus, she got me again. She got me again. Make your partner happy too. Is another, if you can't get there, there are intermediate things. You can make tiny, tiny noises. Okay. You can just literally say the word moan. Noise. <laughs> emoji. <laughs> Smiley face emoji. <laughs> oh my God. I'm just imagining that. Moan. <laughs> it, that's such a writer thing, too. She's going to literally <laughs> say the word. And or then she moaned. What Abby said, what you did deserves a moan. Yeah. What you did deserves a moan. Because Abby needs words of affirmation. Okay, babe, we're going to work on this. And I also like the assignment because I like any sex assignment that really only involves writing down words. Also, you're perfect just the way you are. Thank you. I love you. Emily, you are a hero for our times, a national treasure, what the world needs, the one we've been waiting for. We loved every minute of this. Please just go do all of your important work with freeing women to have more confident and joyful sex lives and also come back and see us and also be our sister and also move next door to me. Yes. Okay. Okay. All of those things. Okay. We love you so much. Thank Thank you you so much. Thank you all for being at We Can Do Hard Things. If you get, um, you know, scared, tired, exhausted, whatever this week, don't forget, We Can Do Hard Things. Thank you, Emily. Thank you. This was so fun. We Can Do Hard Things is produced in partnership with Cadence 13 Studios. Be sure to rate, review, and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts. Especially be sure to rate and review the podcast if you really liked it. If you didn't, don't worry about it. 